Welcome back, and thanks for supporting this program. This is Death by Ignorance, a weekly podcast about things that should worry you. Episode 14. Crisis? What crisis? I was out enjoying a lovely fall afternoon walk just about two days ago. I was with a friend. She's a very bright, well-read, socially aware individual, someone who keeps abreast of most of the important issues going on around our country, and conversation unexpectedly turned to the opioid crisis. I brought up one of the latest developments in the ongoing crisis, the recent surge in overdose deaths, and the number of those fatalities that are being linked to Chinese fentanyl. Despite the significant amount of public attention this drug has been getting of late, some of the information that we talked about seemed to be coming as news to her. When I shared my concerns about how drugs like fentanyl are poised to radically change the face of the opioid crisis and what I thought that could mean to our already beleaguered society, she was surprised, and that surprised me. I thought a lot more about our conversation that evening, and I think I have a better understanding of Laura's surprise. While I don't think that there are many subjects, other than Trump that is, that get as much airtime and print space as the current U.S. opioid crisis, there are probably few other issues that are so poorly understood by so many. I think that one of the reasons that people seem to be so confused about this topic is that most of the time the people who are telling us about it have some agenda or other. The crisis is almost being used like a blunt object by politicians and religious leaders, drug makers, the healthcare industry, and a host of other interests who are all trying to advance this or that agenda. More regulation, less regulation, more funding, less taxation, more research grants, more hospital beds, and on and on. The public hears the sound bites, the fragments of the picture that are relevant to this or that agenda, but not much else. As a result, much of the context is lost, and what's already a complicated and nuanced problem becomes a jumbled and confusing mixture of facts, partial facts, and irrelevant details that few people can make sense of. So I thought this might be a good time for us all to take a step back and take a good look at where we are with this opioid crisis today. But for us to really grasp what's going on now with Americans and dope, we actually need to go even further back to the beginning of the whole mess. And this is one subject that we all need to know inside and out, because if I'm reading the tea leaves right, the worst is yet to come. There is nothing remotely new about humanity's almost instinctive drive to alter the way in which our lives are experienced. We've been chasing that buzz ever since the first cave dweller tasted the juice collecting under a pile of overripe, partially fermented grapes. 
The history of mankind's relationship with intoxicant is a truly fascinating story, and I highly recommend Ian Gately's most excellent Drink, A Cultural History of Alcohol as a great place to start if you want to learn more. The first historical mention of opium dates back to 3,400 years before the Common Era when the powerful properties of the opium poppy's seed pod resin were first discovered. Originally described by the Sumerians of Lower Mesopotamia, the drug was soon adopted by the Assyrians and before long the Egyptians. In the blink of an eye, opium cultivation spread all along the Silk Road from the eastern Mediterranean across Asia to China. The resin from the poppy there was in high demand across the globe, but it could only be successfully cultivated in the warm and dry climate in the mountainous regions of Central Asia. The Silk Road was a trading route that grew to connect the Persian and Syrian empires of the west to the Indian kingdoms in the east, and opium was one of the commodities traded along the route. To satisfy England's unquenchable thirst for highly prized Chinese tea, British traders began smuggling the narcotic from suppliers in India into China and onto the black market. Opium addiction rapidly became widespread and China struck back, kicking off the opium wars of the mid-1800s. But the Chinese addiction had an iron grip on the country. When large numbers of Chinese workers emigrated to the United States to work on the growing network of railroads, they brought their opium habits and their opium pipes with them. San Francisco, which was the home to many of the Chinese immigrants, was soon home to America's first opium dens. But it wasn't long before they were springing up in great numbers in New York and elsewhere. The separation of morphine from raw opium, removing two other important compounds, codeine and thebane, in the process, was first accomplished in 1803 and resulted in a drug ten times more potent than opium. In the span of less than 40 years, this morphine earned the status of a miracle drug and was being prescribed by physicians across the country as a cure for just about anything they could think of. In 1874, the German drug company Bayer, the Aspirin guys, synthesized a new morphine-based pain medicine, diacetyl morphine. And when it was released onto the market for human use in 98, it was rebranded heroin. Heroin is twice the potency of morphine, as would happen several more times with several other drugs, the addiction potential of heroin was grossly underestimated and mystifyingly went unrecognized as such until about 1903, by which time a great many Americans were hopelessly addicted to the drug. Heroin has been illegal in the U.S. since 1924. Oxycodone, Another drug, manufactured this time from thebane, the other ingredient of opium, was introduced with some fanfare in 1950. 
It was formulated as a mixture with aspirin and marketed under the name Percodan. The excitement over the release of oxycodone was once again a result of its apparent low abuse potential. And it's this little molecule, 4,5-epoxy-14-hydroxy-3-methoxy-17-methylmorphanan-6-1, the active ingredient in OxyContin, where our story begins. Many scholars describe the opioid crisis as having three distinct phases. I think this is a reasonable way to describe the events, but only insofar as we don't think of the third phase as any final phase. There are going to be more than three phases. The first phase could be called the prescription narcotic phase of the opioid crisis. The second might be called the heroin phase, and the current or third phase should probably be referred to as the synthetic phase. These are my terms. You may hear them described differently by others. Before I describe these phases, let me make one very important distinction. I believe that it is unhelpful and inaccurate to think of the opioid crisis as being the sum total of America's addiction problem, and that couldn't really be farther from the truth. The scope of addiction goes far beyond the current phenomenon of the opioid crisis, and it includes a whole host of other ills with equally devastating impact on every aspect of our society. When we speak about addiction, we must expand the conversation to include alcohol, nicotine, amphetamines, barbiturates, tranquilizers, topical anesthetics like cocaine, and countless other mind-altering or psychoactive compounds. It's a serious mistake to think about the opioid crisis as somehow separate from the larger issue of addiction. I'll be paying particular attention to the bigger problem of addiction a little later on, but for now, I think it may help you to understand the opioid crisis if you think of Addiction is not just the sufferer's physical dependence on a particular substance or group of substances, but also as the maladaptive coping behaviors of the addict. It's an important point, so I'll state it another way. Fixing the opioid crisis isn't going to do a damn thing about the addiction problem. This will become clearer, I hope, shortly. The opioid crisis is an upheaval, a relatively sudden and devastating chain of events with far-reaching consequences for individuals and for society. Addiction was here long before and will remain long after this crisis. The crisis has dramatically changed the way we look at addiction as a society, and in many ways, that's a pretty good thing. We needed to look at addiction differently, as something other than a personal weakness or demonic possession or moral corruption. The opioid crisis has dragged addiction out into the sunlight, kicking and screaming for us all to see. The circumstances that gave opportunity for this crisis to take hold are complicated, and there were and still are many factors at play. But a good place to start this sad story is with the release of one drug, 
from the pharmaceutical company Purdue Pharma LP, owned by the insatiably greedy and amoral Sackler family, the architects of America's opioid crisis. OxyContin was released by Purdue in 1996. It's nothing more than oxycodone and a delivery system designed to release the drug slowly over a period of hours. Because of the once again purportedly safe, slow release of the narcotic, each pill contained more and sometimes very much more of the drug than could usually be administered in a single oral dose. Instead of the 5 milligrams of oxycodone found in a Percodan pill, one dose of oxycontin could contain 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, or even 80 milligrams of the drug. At one time, a 160 milligram dose was also available. The drug was intended for the management of chronic severe pain of the type experienced by patients with advanced malignant disease. And as such, it was and still is a useful tool for clinicians. However, the drug was aggressively marketed as a less addictive formulation of oxycodone. Physicians were continually pressured to write more prescriptions for the drug, and in many cases they were bribed with gifts and trips and lucrative phony consulting arrangements in exchange for writing more prescriptions. The drug was being prescribed fast and loose by thousands of doctors around the country, and this went on for years. Patients with minimal, or in some cases with no indications at all for treatment with these powerful and powerfully addicted pills, were becoming dependent on them by the thousands. This laxity in the prescribing practices for OxyContin spilled over to other narcotics, resulting in more prescribing and more addiction. Existing addicts very quickly realized the abuse potential of these formulations, and they almost immediately began seeking them out, either on the street where there was a busy resale market, or by doctor shopping to secure prescriptions of their own. The experienced drug users began misusing the pills by chewing them to deliver the entire dose at once, or dissolving them to extract the active ingredient for injection. Eventually, the formulation would change to deter extraction of the active drug, but sophisticated abusers were able to circumvent many of the safeguards. The company was recently forced to pay $600 million in penalties for the deliberate mislabeling of OxyContin, and for its promotion as a less addictive formulation of oxycodone. While these 2007 fines may have been the largest fines ever levied against a pharmaceutical manufacturer, the amount seems far too low given their role in the crisis. Purdue and the Sacklers have subsequently been sued by multiple states, with Oklahoma winning a $270 million settlement earlier this year. A settlement for the outstanding suits was negotiated a few weeks ago, and the amount uh, was about $12 billion in total. 
The company went into liquidation a few weeks ago and will be reorganized as a public beneficiary company, with all the profits going to plaintiffs in the case. The drug maker will provide addiction treatment drugs at no cost to the public. The Sacklers were also thrown out of the company and made to pay $3 billion, presumably something they could do out of petty cash, as another part of this settlement. None of the eight Sackler family members went to jail, which is an absurdity. And just in case you're tempted to believe that this hefty settlement has somehow set the vile Sackler family on the path to redemption, uh, don't. Just a couple of weeks ago, the family was caught illegally hiding $1 billion in personal assets in offshore accounts. So maybe a few of them will go to prison after all. I certainly hope so. As a young doctor, I received relatively little direct training about the appropriate use of narcotics in medical practice. But that was in large part because the way we used them was pretty straightforward. Potent narcotics were used for patients with terminal malignant disease, cancer, people dying of cancer, that is. And they were used for a few days in post-operative surgery patients. There were exceptions like sickle cell crisis and kidney stones, but not a lot of them. The use of these powerful drugs for non-cancer pain, back pain, migraine, fibromyalgia, never seemed like a good idea, and I doubt it would have taken hold without the aggressive marketing tactics of drug makers. But their campaign to change the way doctors treated pain was undeniably successful. By 1999, 86% of narcotic prescriptions in the U.S. were for non-cancer pain. The liberal prescribing of narcotics and other potentially dangerous and addictive medications was the proximate cause of American deaths during the first phase of the crisis. Kids from well-off families started experimenting with the plentiful supply of pills they found in their parents' bathroom cabinets. Some of the early casualties were opiate-naive teenagers succumbing to respiratory failure after chewing one of Dad's 40-milligram oxys. The deaths went largely unnoticed at first, but as the bodies started to pile up, the authorities began paying much closer attention. When the scope of the problem was finally appreciated, it triggered a slowly building panic. First for the authorities, which began tracking the prescribing behavior of physicians and were soon aggressively sanctioning doctors for overprescribing. The panic hit the clinicians next, doctors whose waiting rooms were filled to bursting with oxycodone-dependent patients, desperate for their next prescription lest they begin to withdraw from the potent narcotics. These were some of the same doctors who had so blithely pumped these drugs into their communities, and now they suddenly stopped writing prescriptions, fearing attention from medical boards or local authorities. Before long, doctors were fearing more than just medical boards as law enforcement agencies across the country 
began to investigate heavy prescribers, and courts started imprisoning the physicians of overdose victims. With the panic in full tilt, the supply of powerful prescription narcotics eventually ground essentially to a halt. As the pendulum swung further in the other direction, physicians not only stopped prescribing for the people who shouldn't have been on these drugs in the first place, they also stopped prescribing for patients with legitimate pain. Even terminal cancer patients, a group who should have ready access to the most potent and effective narcotics, were finding it difficult or impossible to find a doctor who was willing to prescribe their medications. And if this throwing the baby out with the bathwater sounds familiar, it should, because this type of unthinking, irrational, reflexive overreaction is so typical of how our society thinks today. As the decade-long first phase of the opioid crisis draws to a close, we find the authorities scrambling for someone to blame, a medical profession scared to death and in full retreat, and untold numbers of new addicts cut off from their drug supply. The second phase of the opioid crisis began as precipitously as the first had ended. What happened next shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone, or at least it shouldn't have surprised anyone who knew a damn thing about drug dependence and addiction. The market for illegal street narcotics exploded. Stay-at-home moms, school principals, factory workers, and clergymen were looking for alternatives to the no longer available prescription narcotics that so many of them were now both physically and psychologically addicted to. And the drug they turned to was the cheap, pure, and readily available Mexican and Central American heroin that was beginning to flood the market. Long entrenched taboos were forgotten as heroin moved out of the grimy downtown shooting parlors and whorehouses and made its way into upscale suburban homes and struggling working-class neighborhoods across the country. The heroin was killing as many women as it was men. It was killing professionals, blue-collar workers, and the unemployed in equal numbers. All age groups were represented in the mounting list of overdose deaths, from pre-teens to octogenarians. Between 2002 and 2013, heroin-related overdose deaths increased by almost 300%. 80% of heroin users admitting to having used or abused prescription narcotics prior to trying heroin for the first time. Users who started out snorting or ingesting the drug often turned to injection for the higher high, the bigger rush, and many of them ended up sharing needles, which also meant sharing HIV, hepatitis C, bacterial endocarditis, and God knows what else with their fellow addicts. It should be noted that during this bleak period in American history, 
the pharmaceutical industry kept right on pouring millions of dollars into lobbying campaigns, pushing lawmakers to relax the CDC's prescribing guidelines and trying to block attempts to hold prescribers and pharmaceutical companies to account and roll back opioid overprescribing measures. Whatever would we do without Big Pharma? The second phase of the opioid crisis hasn't actually ended, but we need to come up with a term to describe the even sharper rise in opioid-related overdose deaths between 2013 and today. So phase three it is. It's this third phase of the crisis that should strike a chill into the hearts of all Americans. I sometimes wonder when I think about this if there is anyone left whose family has not been touched by this horror show in some way. And what changed in 2013? What is phase three? What is the synthetic opioid phase? To answer that properly, I need to tell you about another chemical. This one's called fentanyl. It's an entirely synthetic formulation. The drug's precursors are formulated in factories, and the drug itself is made in the lab. It's not harvested from a shrub or a tree. It first came on the scene around 1960, probably to commemorate my second birthday. When it first came out, it was sold under the name Sublimase, and it was marketed as an anesthetic. It's still used in the operating room today and is a very valuable resource in the anesthesiologist's toolkit. What makes fentanyl so useful is its potency. It is 50 times more potent than heroin, 100 times more potent than morphine. It has a number of important differences from the opium-derived narcotics. It has a shorter duration of action, meaning its effects wear off sooner. Users of the drug report that it provides a more intense high than heroin. Fentanyl is extremely bioavailable, and it's readily absorbed both through the GI and the respiratory tracts. It's even able to pass rapidly across intact human skin to enter the bloodstream of anyone simply coming in contact with the drug. In one 12-month period of phase three, the year 2017 to be exact, the number of opiate-related overdose deaths rose to a stunning 47,000. That's 129 overdose deaths every day. One dead user every 15 minutes for an entire year. Of those 47,000 deaths, 28,000 were directly attributed to overdose from fentanyl or a fentanyl analog. We'll be talking about the impact of drug analogs shortly, but briefly, they're very similar molecules in most respects to the parent, but they may have one or two minor appearing differences, an extra alkyl group here or an extra methyl group there, for example. Carfentanil is an analogue of fentanyl, indistinguishable by looking at it, but 100 times more potent than fentanyl. To put that in perspective, 300 grams of fentanyl 
that's about the same weight as two iPhones, is enough to kill 150,000 adult human beings. Five grams of car fentanyl, that's the same weight as one US nickel coin, is enough to kill one quarter of a million adult human beings. Let that sink in. That's what phase three is all about. The sudden surge in deaths is due to the influx of a drug of such potency that in its pure form, you could not see a particle large enough to kill you. So where is this stuff coming from? Who's using it? And what does it mean for the opioid crisis? The vast majority of fentanyl is manufactured in factories and labs across China. Some's produced illegally, but much of it is not. There's very little government control over the manufacture of fentanyl, its precursor compounds, or its analogues. That's largely because China doesn't have an opioid crisis of their own, and are somewhat less motivated to spend a ton of money on a problem that they don't themselves have. The only reason China might have to expend the resources to properly police the making and moving of this drug would be to help us with our fentanyl crisis. In other words, control of the drug in China is pretty much dependent on how well we're getting along with our communist pals. In recent months, an agreement was reached that makes fentanyl and its analogues controlled substances in China. That is true. But how well that control is being exerted is anyone's guess. With 160,000 companies producing fentanyl in China, keeping tabs is going to be a major task. How does fentanyl get from China to the U.S.? There are two main ways in which the drug gets into our country. The first is somewhat traditional. Barrels of the precursor chemicals and the drug itself sometimes are shipped directly from Chinese ports to one of two ports on the west coast of Mexico, Manzanillo and Lazaro Cardenas. The chemicals are then distributed to manufacturing sites that are under the control of the Sinaloa cartel or the newly reformed Jalisco cartel, the CJNG. There, the fentanyl is made using the Chinese precursors. It's not a terribly difficult process, and packaged for shipment north through Tijuana to San Diego. Recently, the cartels have been using polydrug shipments, smuggling the fentanyl in the same shipment with heroin and methamphetamine destined for the Northeast United States. Because so much potency can be packed into such small shipments, border seizures are quite ineffective, and most of the drug seems to be getting through. Once in the U.S., it's shipped to distribution points across the country using the U.S. Postal Service or by personal vehicle. The Sinaloa cartel was recently implicated in a novel scheme for moving their fentanyl from San Diego to Buffalo, New York, for distribution across the Northeast. 
they were packing the fentanyl in shipments of sea cucumbers under the guise of three seafood supply houses and sending it by commercial air carrier to its destination. Sea cucumbers, in addition to being utterly revolting, are expensive and prone to spoilage in transit. Ports are responsible for spoilage that occurs as a result of delays at their facilities, and having a limited budget for such claims, they're keen to get the slimy treats out of their hands as expeditiously as possible. To prevent these financial hits, inspections were often rushed and cursory if they were done at all, and the fentanyl-stuffed sea slugs went undetected. Undetected, that is, until a bright investigator, who'd obviously had the misfortune to taste a sea cucumber at some point, started to wonder who the hell in Buffalo, the chicken wing place, was gorging their way through hundreds of crates of water slugs. The next shipment was checked, and the game was up. But for how long, I wonder? A month? A week? A day? Interestingly, most of the distribution in the Northeast is outsourced to Dominican gangs that handle the street-level dealing. It's another example of the cartel's hands-off, decentralized outsourcing. Much has been written about the Mexicans' cartel role in fentanyl manufacture and distribution, and there appears to be a distinct trend away from centralization in this line of business. Almost all the intermediary tasks of transport, packaging, smuggling, and money laundering are handed off to non-cartel-affiliated gangs within Mexico. All of this makes interdiction by Mexican and U.S. authorities much less productive. Another factor that favors this method of trafficking is that Mexico doesn't see fentanyl as a problem in Mexico, and much like the Chinese, they really aren't doing very much about it. Chinese fentanyl coming through Mexico is cut with other substances and formed into counterfeit pain pills on this side of the border, usually. Some of the counterfeits are very good and quite difficult to detect without testing the constituent chemicals in a lab. As a result, fentanyl is finding its way into almost all illicit products brought into the U.S., Counterfeit oxycodone pills, for example, may contain nothing but lactose and fentanyl. For several years, seized heroin was found to have varying amounts of fentanyl in the mix, with the amount of fentanyl increasing over time. Today, much of the heroin in the U.S. contains no heroin at all, just fentanyl and whatever adulterant is used to make up the weight. And this makes a lot of sense. The street value of one kilo of heroin is about $75,000. And the street value of one kilo of fentanyl is over $1.3 million. The risk-to-profit ratio favors the fentanyl many times over. One very disconcerting trend has been the addition of fentanyl to other illegal drugs of Chinese or Mexican origin. Fentanyl is being found in methamphetamine, in cocaine, and even in marijuana, presumably making them that much more addictive. 
ensuring that much more return business. The DEA, by the way, does not think that the drugs come to the U.S. pre-mixed, stating that the addition of fentanyl to other drugs is probably happening in this country by distributors. But this Chinese via Mexico pipeline probably only accounts for half or less of the fentanyl making it to the U.S. user. Where is the rest coming from? As shocking and disturbing as this may sound, it's coming through the mail. Our mail. The U.S. Postal Service. The drugs are being put into U.S. Postal Service envelopes and boxes and mailed directly to the Internet purchaser here in the United States. How can this possibly be? Well, to answer that, we need to go back 17 years to when Congress came up with a new set of anti-terrorism laws to protect the homeland from attack through the mail service. The law required that all commercial carriers, companies like FedEx, UPS, and DHL, that were shipping into the U.S. should obtain advance notification from the shipper prior to accepting any merchandise for transport. However, they gave the Postal Service a delay on implementing these restrictions because of the high cost of that implementation. As a result, Chinese fentanyl makers have been able to ship quantities of the drug through the mail into the U.S. with little fear of interference. Our lawmakers let that delay drag on for 16 years before finally requiring the Postal Service to comply last year. But for a reason I really do not understand, fully one-third of Chinese shipments fail to provide this advance information, and the Postal Service ships their stuff to the U.S. anyway. Some mail-order fentanyl is sent directly to the purchaser, but the majority is now being sent to a, a clearinghouse, a lab of sorts operated by Chinese agents in the U.S., who then forward the individual package through the U.S. mail to the purchasers in the U.S. Our own intelligence services have tracked down some of these Chinese nationals, the people that are sending these drugs through the mail, and they've turned over all the information to the Chinese government. But so far, they've done nothing with the information. Consider the following news article. Two months ago, in August of 2019, the Associated Press reported that a shipment containing 30 kilos of fentanyl was seized on its way from Shanghai to Virginia. That is enough fentanyl to kill... 14 million people. Every person in New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. That's a problem. That is a very big problem. This third phase of the opioid crisis with the unprecedented spike in overdose deaths is not just a reflection of the surge of fentanyl and fentanyl analogs in the U.S., there's been another change, not immediately apparent maybe, that's changing the nature of the crisis altogether. That change could be described as a shift in the demand and supply dynamic, 
Throughout history, the sourcing, import, distribution and sale of illegal drugs has been driven by the demands of the end user. When cocaine became the drug of choice for the disco generations of the 70s and 80s, in the years before crack cocaine assaulted the inner cities of the U.S., the Mexican drug cartels immediately responded to the skyrocketing demand for the powdered alkaloid. The price dropped dramatically, and the market was flooded with high-purity cocaine to meet the surging demand. Prior to this time, the drug had been scarce and very expensive. The surge in supply was driven by the increased demand. But this is not what is happening today with fentanyl. The influx of synthetic opioids is not in response to increasing demand for this class of drugs. Studies conducted by the RAND Corporation and published uh, a few months ago in 2019 suggest that the opposite is true. Their research shows that heroin addicts who are witnessing firsthand the climbing death toll are becoming fearful of fentanyl. There's a counterintuitive marketing force in the heroin subculture that's long been recognized and exploited by distribution rings and street sellers. When a rash of overdose deaths occur and word spreads within the addict community that it was this or that brand of heroin, many suppliers brand their drugs for just this reason, the demand for that brand surges. Everyone wants the heroin that is killing the other addicts because, well, that must be some very potent heroin. But this doesn't appear to be happening to the same extent with fentanyl. Maybe it's because heroin addicts, especially those who've been using the drug for some time, believe they know their drug. They may have some level of trust in their brand or in their supplier. And this leaves them with a sense of security, albeit a false one. But fentanyl is not familiar to these addicts. Sure, they're aware of the extremely narrow safety window, the minuscule difference between a powerful high and a fatal overdose, but they have no frame of reference for the actual risk. When it comes to heroin, experienced addicts think they know the risks. They don't, but they think they do. But with fentanyl, they know they don't know. I know this is a huge overgeneralization, but my point is this. Heroin addicts are afraid of these new synthetic opioids and will avoid them when they can. So the heroin users that have survived phase two of this crisis are not driving the bus in phase three. The supply of fentanyl is, to a degree, independent of demand, and the decisions concerning its distribution are being made by the drug suppliers. Fentanyl is creating its own demand. This is not the same as a heroin street supplier giving out samples to get new addict customers. This is something entirely different. This is the fentanyl manufacturers and distributors determining what Americans will be addicted to. 
In 2019, most of the fentanyl is showing up in the east of the country and concentrated in the usual places, Appalachia, New England, and the Mid-Atlantic. And it seems rather unlikely that it'll remain so for long. Given the staggering profits to be made from synthetics like fentanyl, the relatively low risk and low cost of shipping and distribution and the ongoing demand for heroin west of the Mississippi, it must only be a matter of time before these drugs are being incorporated into the Western supply chain. There are other reasons why the third phase of the crisis, the fentanyl phase, is of such great concern. The very nature of synthetic opioid manufacture makes interdiction at the source enormously problematic. There are no poppy fields to destroy, no coca plantations to defoliate. The drug precursors can be synthesized in small factories and the drug or its analogs can be prepared in a basically equipped laboratory. Illicit production can go unnoticed, especially in countries where its production is not a pressing national concern. But the real danger is in the ease and rapidity with which production can be modified to create entirely new drug analogs. One recent study that looked into a spate of overdose deaths in Ohio involved testing for 25 distinct fentanyl analogs. But there are literally hundreds of known analogs and presumably many more still to be categorized. A few of the better-known analogs include alfentanil, carfentanil, remifentanil, and sufentanil. As I mentioned earlier, one of these analogs, carfentanil, is 9,000 times more potent than morphine. This means that the fentanyl analogs become a moving target, and subtle changes to the molecular structure may not only result in far more potent narcotics, but also in drugs that fall outside of existing controls. As a result, the Chinese manufacturers are able to make these changes very quickly and very effectively in order to avoid detection and circumvent legal roadblocks. I'm telling you all this to drive home the point that reliance on existing national drug policy as a response to this new fentanyl threat will be doomed to failure and will cost countless additional lives unless the new threat is approached with a willingness to consider innovative alternatives to the ineffective measures currently in force. If we don't do something, the 400,000 lives that have already been lost during this crisis will seem far less significant as the toll rises. What then should our leaders be considering to address this new and growing danger? In a word, everything. We need to put our biases and preconceptions about addiction and the addicted behind us and become open to solutions that have proven effective elsewhere in the developed world. Supervised consumption sites, creative supply disruption, drug content testing, and even heroin-assisted treatment options will be a reasonable place to start. 
We're in a window of opportunity to do something about the inevitable westward metastasis of synthetic opioid addiction. We should be working to develop novel and creative tactics for disrupting the Western supply infrastructure before it becomes fully entrenched. Cramming our prisons with low-level dealers and couriers is a waste of resources. Given the cost of such efforts and the insignificance of their impact on the supply chain, Instead, that money could be allocated to the development of effective mechanisms for disruption of the internet-based drug sourcing infrastructure. We should be consulting with our friends in Canada and Estonia, two countries with decades of exposure to the synthetic opioid threat. And the experience of several other European countries should be considered carefully. In every European market where fentanyl and other synthetics have displaced heroin, the synthetics have remained dominant. It would be foolish in the extreme for us to think about the synthetic opioid phenomenon as a passing aberration. The synthetics are here to stay, and we must adapt to the new challenges accordingly. There will be a fourth phase to this crisis, and we have to find a new way of thinking about addiction if we're to have any hope of forestalling its emergence. The American experience with narcotics and with the opioid crisis in particular should have taught us some very important lessons. The most important lesson, in my opinion, learned through the abject failure of a hopelessly misguided and unevenly implemented war on drugs is that drug addiction is, at least in part, a symptom of bigger problems in our country. It is not the root cause of poverty, inequality, unemployment, and all of society's other ills. It was the failure to understand this fundamental reality that gave rise to the war on drugs in the first place. Fighting a war on drugs by criminalizing those afflicted with addiction Breaking up families by imprisoning parents, targeting the most severely affected and already marginalized among us, the mentally ill, the homeless, and the unemployed, and focusing these callous measures disproportionately on inner-city African-American communities is not only utterly ineffective, but also belies a stunning lack of understanding about the nature of drug addiction. We must start seeing the problem of drug addiction for what it really is. Addiction has been described as a biopsychosocial and genetic condition. What does that mean? The bio part is the pharmacologic element of addiction. It refers to the biologic effect of a given chemical on the addict's brain chemistry. Fentanyl is what's known as a pure mu receptor agonist, like heroin or morphine. Fentanyl molecules bind to these specialized brain receptors and trigger a chemical cascade in the addict's brain, starting with the release of a neurotransmitter called dopamine and affecting the complex pathways related to reward, reinforcement, and motivation. This causes a subjective feeling of intense well-being, of euphoria. 
Over time, more of the chemical is required to trigger the same reaction, and this phenomenon is known as tolerance. But when the chemical is no longer available and the addict abruptly discontinues use, the brain cannot adapt to the change quickly enough and dopamine release is prevented and the user experiences an intense dysphoria and physical symptoms of acute withdrawal that's complicated by an almost overpowering craving for the drug. The addict requires the chemical to feel normal. This is physical dependence. It's obviously a lot more complicated than that, but this is, in a nutshell, the bio part of addiction. The psychology of addiction is not terribly well understood, but it's clear that certain personality characteristics suggestive of ego defects may predispose to the development of an addiction. Low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, and difficulty coping with social stresses may also predispose an individual. The fact that mu receptor stimulation causes an increase in self-esteem and a decrease in anxiety, along with an enhanced ability to cope with stressful situations, all of which are among the strongly reinforcing effects of narcotic use, supports this idea. Jumping briefly to the genetics of addiction, it seems likely that there are several genetic forces involved in the predisposition to addiction. There's a high degree of polymorphism in the genes controlling the production of dopamine receptors, mu receptors, serotonin receptors, proenkephalin, and catechol-O-methyltransferase. Each of these molecules are intimately involved in the mechanisms of addiction, so the variability in gene expression point to a strong genetic component in the relative vulnerability of a given individual to addiction. The social part of addiction gets less attention than I believe it deserves. While it's clear that addiction rates increase in segments of society where good parenting is lacking, unemployment is high, social acceptance of drug experimentation is the norm, and crime rates are increased, much less has been written about those social factors influencing a lowering of addiction rates. With more research, I fully expect we'll find a strong connection, a negative correlation that is, between addiction rates and lives that are objectively purposeful, rewarding, and hopeful. This stands to reason. When a person is fully engaged with their reality, when there's a good reason to get out of bed in the morning, to work hard, invest energy in the family, support the community, and expect a bright future, there is little allure in chemical manipulation. This is just the flip side of the same coin. When a person is oppressed, underemployed, imprisoned, homeless, and sees no chance of change, the allure of a chemical that promises release and relief, even if it's only for a moment, is a powerful temptation. There is much that we should be doing to address the social problems that are fueling this opioid crisis. When life without chemicals is preferable to the oblivion of those chemicals, the demand for the false promise of narcotics will wane.
Sometimes the start of an addiction is a symptom of a society that's badly out of balance, a desperate coping mechanism for desperate people. But sometimes it's not. So many of today's addicts caught up in the maelstrom of the crisis weren't pushed into addiction by poverty or homelessness, mental health issues or oppression. Sometimes it starts with peer pressure to experiment. Sometimes it's a misguided attempt to self-medicate. Sometimes it starts with a prescription from a doctor who was just trying to alleviate suffering. But once it begins, none of that really matters anymore because opioid addiction is an equal opportunity killer. It doesn't care who you are or how much wealth you have, how popular you are, how often you go to church or what kind of job you have. It doesn't care about the color of your skin, the gender pronoun you prefer, or whether you're in grade school or a nursing home. Nobody is immune to addiction. Addiction causes abject misery for the addict and is a living hell for the family. Addiction is not a sin, a moral failing, or a sign of weakness. And addiction is not a choice. So I'm not going to talk about harm reduction, personal responsibility, social cohesion and healing, access to treatment, reforming our drug laws, China and a sane foreign policy. I'm not going to talk about universal access to naloxone, modernization of our postal service, clear and flexible guidelines for prescribers, improved prescriber education, decriminalization of certain drug offenses, rational policies for expanding medication-assisted treatment. I'm not going to talk about expanding treatment facility access or that it should be funded by the pharmaceutical industry or about the technology to disrupt internet sourcing of synthetic opiates. I'm not going to talk about any of these things or a hundred other important issues not because they're not important, they most unequivocally are, but because there's something more important that we need to do first. We need to change the way that we think about the fentanyl crisis. There is no fentanyl crisis, not really. This is an American addiction crisis. Eradicating the threat of Chinese fentanyl will accomplish one thing and one thing only. It will usher in the next crisis. Focusing on the crack ep epidemic, the oxy problem, the meth explosion, or the fentanyl crisis, while ignoring the bigger American addiction problem, we're missing the point entirely and leaving the door wide open for the next drug du jour. And we keep doing it. We are an addicted society. Why? We need to spend more time and energy on the root causes of addiction in our broken society, and we need to address what we find. But I get it. Fixing the real problem is not as sexy as installing a hundred new quantum gravity scanners for reading the minds of shipping containers. And let's not forget the rich and powerful corporations or their pet politicians who are perfectly happy with the status quo. 
If we're waiting for corporate America or the U.S. Congress to take the initiative, then we really haven't learned a damn thing. To make any meaningful progress in the opioid crisis, we need to first address the American addiction crisis at its roots. And to do that, we must tackle poverty and inequality and access to affordable health care. We must come to grips with corporate hegemony and government corruption and a host of other root issues. Until we take seriously the problems of a U.S. society in full collapse, we're just going to have to get used to the addiction problem. Oh, and come up with a new name for the crisis every year or two. Good night.